We are in a season called harvest season, and in this season, we are taking Jesus' words, John chapter 4, you say there are four months until the harvest, but I say to you, open your eyes and look, the harvest is now. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying we shouldn't be a people, we shouldn't be a church, we shouldn't be a move of God that waits four months to tell somebody about him. In other words, we, we have a mantra that we champion during the season, we won't wait four months, okay? I'm going to invite you in on it, 9.30 didn't do bad, but I told him I think the 11 has them. Our mantra for this season is taken from the words of Jesus, John chapter 4, the harvest, you say there's four months until the harvest, I say open your eyes, the harvest is now. We won't wait four months. First two rows, excellent job. Let's try again. We won't wait four months. One more time. We won't wait four months. What are we saying? We're saying, I'm not going to wait four months to share my faith with the person who sits in class with me every single day. Saying, I'm not going to wait four months to meet my neighbors and share with them the love of Jesus in some form or fashion. I'm not going to wait four months while I'm having gospel conversations every day or they're asking me questions about life. I'm not going to wait four months to share my faith with somebody in the break room at work. Jesus said, you say there's four months. I'm telling you, it's 11, 11's fine with this, get your butt to work now. Jesus said, you're saying four months. I'm saying, tighten up the bootstraps. Let's rock and roll. It's time right now. All right, Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is coming before his people. He characterizes his ministry. He calls his disciples in. He says, this is what my ministry looked like, and this is what we need moving forward. What you're going to hear today is an invitation from Jesus to participate in the mission of Jesus and how you should look while you're doing it, okay? So he's saying, hey, here's what it's been. Here's what it's going to be. Come on in, let's make this happen. Hear this in Matthew 9, 35 through 38, the words of Jesus. Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. Really important, we'll come back to it again. Matthew 9, 35 is the characterization of Jesus' ministry up until this point. What did it just say? He went around teaching healing and announcing the kingdom, inviting people in. He went around teaching, healing, announcing the kingdom, inviting people in. This was Jesus' ministry characterized. Then we roll to verse 36. This is Jesus. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest, and ask him to send more workers into his fields. Love Eugene Peterson, and I love his paraphrase, Matthew 9, 35-38, same passage written in a really beautiful way. It says, Then Jesus made a circuit of all the towns and villages. He taught in their meeting places, reported kingdom news, and healed their diseased bodies, healed their bruised and hurt lives. When he looked out over the crowds, his heart broke. So confused and aimless they were, like sheep with no shepherd. What a huge harvest, he said to his disciples. How few workers. On your knees and pray for harvest 
hands. Amen? All right. I don't know if this was mine. I just busted the seal. All right. The seal was broken. I don't think any of our worship teams been to West Africa lately. We're, we're good. All right. Um, hey, any, anybody, let me just tell you something really quick. Uh, if you have one kid, life is easy. Life is easy, okay? I'm just telling you. If you have, if you have one kid, they got it good, right? They don't even know. Right? You're not even in the game. You don't believe me? Have another one. <laughs> you, if you don't believe me, that's fine. Have yourself another one. Look, when you have two, you're just getting into the game, okay? Like, you're just now starting to, like, become part of us, right? Like, there's a, there's a club, and it's like, you got one. Okay, yeah, we'll see you in, a, in nine months, right? You got two. Okay, welcome in. Like, here's what happens. You go from, like, being able to trade off, right? When you have one, it's like, oh, no, you take him. Oh, no, I'll take him. Oh, you get your nap in. I'll get my nap in. You're only packing one lunch. You're only packing one diaper bag. You're only jacking with one car seat, right? You only have one car seat, one stroller, one thing to load. Like, it's only, it's one. It's easy. Add two, you go to -to man-to-man coverage, okay? It's, I mean, welcome to the club. Hope you're having fun, right? There's a little bit of difference in two. It's still... It's still, I mean, it's relative, it's manageable. I mean, is it manageable? Two is, two is good. Go to three and things change. It, the, the game gets interesting, right? You get three and then, like, you enter this new club of elitism, right? I'm not shaming parents of two and one. I'm just telling you, you, you don't know what you're talking about. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but, I mean, you get three and it changes because then you're outnumbered. So then when you're outnumbered and, you know, invariably one's always going to be off the rails. And if you go to the store by yourself, one verse three, yeah, right? Better have a lot of tablets on hand. You better have something going, right? One verse three is really, really hard. When you add a fourth, I'm telling you, I'm at four right now. It, like, <laughs> my wife's not here today. <laughs> Maybe that'll tell you something, Right? Pastor's wife, and uh, she did not make it. It was a really, really rough morning, right? So let me, let me just, I'll give you an example, right? So, and, and here's what happened for us this summer. Um, my daughter, Zion, 10 years old, she has autism. She has a program that she usually attends during the summer, and that program got canceled, so she was off the rail. I mean, this was the hardest summer we have ever had by far. So Zion's, Zion's off the rails. My seven-year-old, his boredom is your problem. Like, you have a kid like that? Dad, I'm bored. Okay. Well, Dad, what do you want me to do? I don't know. Like, there's, you got toys, video games, Legos. Dad, I don't want to do anything. Dad, what can I do? Dad, will you give me something to do? Dad, will you, tell, Dad, will you play with me? Dad, will you do this? Dad, I'm, it's, like, it's like 7.30. I'm leaving for work. I'm like, it's 7.30. How are you bored? You've been awake 10 minutes, right? Like, how does it, so his boredom's your problem. Then I have a two-year-old, pours out everything. That is his jam. Cereal, oatmeal, Gatorade, water bottles, does not matter. He's dumping it out, and he just, it's his thing. And, I mean, dumping it out is the least of our worries now. Then he thinks it's fun to play in it, right? So get you a Capri Sun and some oatmeal in the middle of your floor and have a kid plieing in the middle of it, right? So then there's him, and then Ezra, who was born trisomy 21, he has Down syndrome. He just has a lot more requirements from, like, being held and being cared for and everything else. All four of them in one home for two months. I love my wife so much. 
I am so grateful she is a hero. But here is what would happen. And some of you husbands, you've probably gotten this call a time or two. Uh, for me, it was probably about weekly. And it usually landed around Thursday towards the end of the week. It would be either a text message or a phone call that would go something along the lines of this. I've had it. Come home now. I'm going crazy. Come home now. Hello? Hello? Question mark? Pinging? Like, okay, I got it, you know? And I would show up at home, and there's my beautiful wife, and she's standing there still in her pajamas from the morning. She's got a side pony on, and the house is, there's our son. He's dancing in oatmeal. Canaan's like, Dad, let's play. Dad, let's play. Let's go play right now. And Zion's standing in the middle of the island, like jumping up and down, and she's holding the baby, and there's dishes, and dinner's burning. And she looks at me, and I say, honey, uh, like, what do you want me to do? And she says, I need help. I don't know. I just need help. They're losing their minds. Help, right? That's where Jesus is, Matthew chapter 9. Probably not the pajamas and side pony. Although he did wear, I believe, something very similar, and I think he had really long hair. Um, Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's saying, guys, harvest is great, the workers are few, help, help me. And it's not a cry of inadequacy and not being able to do it. It is an invitation into the mission of Jesus. And what he is saying is, up until this point, I've done everything. Up until this point, I've preached I've called people to the good news. I've invited them into the kingdom. I've healed. And now the harvest is great. And guess what you get? To help me. Jesus in Matthew 9 is nothing more than reaching out to all of us. And the invitation is still the same today. And he is saying, help me. What do I do? What am I supposed to do? Help it's time. And this help comes out. And it's really beautiful in the narrative of Jesus and how he sets it up. Here's what he walks us through. Not only does he invite us into helping him on mission, but he lets us know the type of people we should be in the midst of it, okay? And, and part of that, this is how the passage breaks down. There are three things that we should have when we go on mission with Jesus and we answer the call to be a people of the harvest. Number one is this, we should have a perspective we should have. There is a, there is a perspective that we should carry. We should have a view that is not the world's view. We should have a worldview that is not the world's View. There is a perspective when it comes to the harvest, how we should see people, we should engage people, and we should invite people in. When we're on mission with Jesus, there is a perspective we should have. There is a problem we should solve. We are problem solvers, and there is a massive problem, and it is a great problem, and it is a huge opportunity, and Jesus has invited us into being problem solvers. And then he finishes with a prayer we should answer. There is a prayer that we become the answer to. So when we talk about Jesus looking at us and hear the invitation, sermon in a sentence, Jesus wants, he doesn't need, he wants your help. What does that look like? I have to have the right perspective. I have to be prepared to solve the problem. And I am an answer to the prayers. All right, let's dive in. You know where we're headed. A perspective we should have. Matthew 9, verse 36, Jesus makes it so clear. When he saw the crowds, 
He had compassion on them because they were two things, confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Boy, we've been in the shepherd narrative for a couple weeks, haven't we? Mini sermon within this verse, really quick. Here it is, okay? What they were, what was missing, what he had. Right? He makes it very clear to us in the middle of this passage when he is inviting us in to be harvest people what they were, what was missing, what he had. Okay, Number one, what were they? What does Jesus say they were? He uses two Greek verbs to describe what they were. We've translated them in English to confused and helpless. Okay, The Greek word confused is the word skulo, and it literally means to fillet or to mangle. So he's saying their confusion is so deep they are, they are filleted. They are like a fish that's been laid down and cut open and divided apart by the confusion of their mind, the confusion of their heart, the confusion of their choices. They are completely mangled with confusion. The second word he uses is helpless. It's the Greek word Hrupto, and it literally means to be thrown down and scattered and unable to get up. So he's saying they are, they are literally mangled with confusion and so broken they can't even get up anymore. They can't stand there. In fact, this word is used again, Matthew 15, 30, and it kind of characterizes the word for us. It says a vast crowd brought to him were people who were, listen to these people, they all had disabilities. Lame, blind, crippled, those who couldn't speak, and many others. They hruptoed them before Jesus. They laid the broken before Jesus. They laid those that couldn't stand up on their own before Jesus. They laid those who were mangled before Jesus, and he healed them all. The mental picture we should have when Jesus is inviting us into the harvest, he is saying, I am inviting you into people who are confused and helpless. They are so confused, their body is shredded because of it. They are so helpless, they can't even get themselves up. Who were they? They were confused and helpless. What was missing? So clear. They are like sheep without they're like sheep without a shepherd. We've been here, right? Ezekiel chapter 34, good shepherd, bad shepherd. He says they are missing the good shepherd. We've been here. David, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. They didn't have that Lord who is their shepherd, right? Zechariah 9, 11 through, 11 through 14. We talked about this, right? Good shepherd, bad shepherd. Good shepherd dies for the people, right? They just missed the good shepherd. Jesus comes along and Jesus says, I am the good Oh, I don't know. You're pushing the 930. You're pushing the 930. That's pretty good. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. So what were they? They were people who were confused and helpless. What was missing the good shepherd? And what did Jesus have? He had compassion. I heard it. What did he have on them? He had compassion on them. This is a majorly intense Greek verb, and it literally means visceral emotions. It's translated other, other places to be moved to one's bowels. 
Now listen, before we let our own graphic imagery manipulate the text for us, here's what it is saying, and let me ask it to you in the form of a question. When was the last time that you saw someone who was confused and who was broken and who was far from God and you had so much compassion on them that you had to grip your stomach and it doubled you over and you literally felt like you were going to throw up because you were so brokenhearted for them? When was the last time you saw somebody so lost, so helpless, so broken, so confused before God that you felt like you had to clench your stomach and fall to a knee before you threw up or were moved to bowels because you were so compassionate for them? Because you had such a deep level of brokenness for them. You were so concerned for them. Let me push a little more. When was the last time that you saw what you would usually stereotypically judge and categorize because they're different than you? Let's just pull one out of our minds. Someone that you see on social media in Seattle wearing clothes the opposite of their gender, having a meltdown in the middle of a public street and people recording them. When was the last time your stomach hurt for their soul? that you were so moved with compassion that it almost brought you to tears. Listen, Jesus cried over lost people. Jesus was moved to compassion so much so it says he nearly couldn't control his bowels. He literally was doubling over, his stomach was hurting, and it wasn't out of disgust, and it wasn't out of judgment, it was out of what? Compassion. Compassion. He is so brokenhearted and compassionate over people who are confused and helpless that he literally couldn't hold it all in. And we spend more time memeing them than loving them. We spend more time posting it and passing it around, laughing and talking about how they're the problem, they're destroying the world, they're the enemy, and everything else, rather than doing what Jesus did and our hearts are literally doubling over and our stomachs hurt at how lost they are from a place of compassion, not a place of judgment, from a place of compassion, not a place of disgust. There is this toxic this toxic culture, and, it, and it's really a targeting masculinity, and it's, it's all over social media, right? Take a moment, scroll your social feed, and you are going to find a tough, alpha, disciplined, militant man telling you, you got to quit being weak, you got to quit crying, you got to quit being soft. The problem with the world today is we got a bunch of soft men, a bunch of soft lilies, a bunch of soft betas who are crying and weak and compassionate and all of these things. And you got to be tough, you got to be relentless, you got to be dominant, you got to be a killer in all things, you got to kill it in sales, you got to kill it in your bank account, you got to kill it at home, you got to kill it in gym, you got to kill, 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 be tough, tough, tough. This toxic culture of masculinity is just everywhere. I'll give you an example. There is a guy named Dr. Jordan Peterson who is a brilliant clinical psychiatrist, clinical psychologist. He's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man. And he was doing a video, and in that video, he was talking about people who are suffering. He's talking about people who are confused, people who are helpless, people who are broken. And he says in that video, the sufferer deserves to be heard. 
and he's so convicted by his own compassion that as he's talking, he starts to cry in the video. He literally starts crying for people who are suffering, who are facing heartbreak, who are confused, who are helpless, who don't know the meaning of their life. And as he's crying and as he's showing compassion in this video, another mega influencer gets a hold of this video and he is just the proponent of what I was talking to you about. And he he gets on his platform to millions of followers and he says, you know what I won't do? I won't cry in a video online like Jordan Peterson. That's soft. That's weak. You know what I will do? I'll be disciplined every day. I'll do this every day. I'll do this every day. I'll do that every day. I'll be a killer every day. And I'll, I'll never show that kind of weakness to anything and anything. And he, he went so far as to say, this was the conclusion of his video. I would show it to you if the language wasn't so bad. He said, I, if I got sentenced to 10 years in prison, I would walk into that prison, chest up, head held high, with a smile on my face, because that's the kind of man that I am. And inside of the comment section, it was just, it was all, yes, a leader should never show weakness. A leader should never show tears. That's a sign of weakness. We have to get rid of all of these soft men who are compassionate and showing, t- and all, I mean, just the, the overall overarching cesspool of the comments. Now, listen, I don't usually do this. I don't usually do this. Something came up. I'm, I'm not a big commenter on social media. I'm not a big, I'm not a big social media guy, um, but it, it just, like, it was so toxic, and I saw so many men that were buying into this because it was a well-done video, that I thought, okay, I just blacked out, started typing, hit post, don't know what happened. <laughs> it wound up on there, right? Um, and, and here were my comments, this, my comment, I want, I want to read it to you. I said, this is juvenile masculinity at its finest. The consensus of the comment section and generalization of Tate assumes crying is a weakness while walking into prison with a smile on his face is a symbol of strength. Under the same assumption and generalization, a soldier with tears streaming down his face while sitting in a foxhole clenching a picture of his family with bullets flying over his head is weak, while if he were smiling at his imminent death, he would be considered more honorable." Daniel Cormier, crying after a loss to John Jones, makes him weaker than the trolls in the comment section saying, leaders should never cry, it's a sign of weakness, yet none of them have seen the elite level of combat themselves. This is not masculinity, this is not strong or alpha, this is narcissism. It's the rejection of reality emotionally and circumstantially for the praise and perceived strength of a crowd. It is completely self-absorbed. Listen to your emotions. They're telling you a story. Masking them with a smile is a recipe for disaster, not dominance. Right? Thank you. (laughs) I wish the comment section liked it as much as you did. (laughs) But here's the thing. Hear me. If all we are is tough, If all we are is tough, we are not Jesus. If all we are is tough, and all we are is filled with judgment and filled with this, I will never show compassion, I will never weep, I will never show a sign of weakness. We may be a lot of things and may be really cool to the world and may have a lot of followers on social media, but we are not Jesus. Because the heart of Jesus wept for people. 
The heart of Jesus was bent over, doubled down in compassion for people who were confused and people who were broken. The heart of Jesus could not contain his compassion so much so that his body was crying out to express it. If we are going to be the people of Jesus on mission for Jesus, doing what he's asked us to do, we have to have a compassion that moves us to tears. We have to have a compassion that makes our stomach hurt. We should see people who are confused and broken and not call them wimps and not call them sorry and not call them sauce and not call them betas. We should call them children of God and we should look to them with a compassion that literally makes us want to double over in a desire to share with them the life-giving, life-saving grace of Jesus. That's who we should be and that's what Jesus is inviting his people into. He's saying you should have a perspective of compassion. The second thing is this. I'm already out of time. It's 11. Who cares, right? It's 11. There's no service next. The second thing is this. We have a problem to solve. Do you realize when you take up the mantle of following Jesus, you take up the mantle of being a problem solver for his kingdom? You take up the mantle of what he's called us to do. You, you become a follower, you become a problem solver. Matthew 9, <clears throat> now this is really, really important to understand. Matthew 9, 37, <clears throat> man, you guys, Levin's got it. Matthew 9, verse 37. He said to his disciples, the harvest is what? What's he say again? The harvest is? That's important. But the workers are few. Here's why that's important. <clears throat> Jesus just made a statement that coming from, let's be contextual for a moment. Application is always better in context, okay? From a contextual standpoint, the harvest has never been great. The harvest has been a really, really bad thing. The harvest has been judgment. The harvest in the Old Testament was judgment. Listen to this in Isaiah 17, 4-5. And the days of Israel's glory will grow dim. Its robust body will waste away. The whole land will look like a grain field after the harvesters have gathered the grain. It will be desolate, like fields in the valley of Rephaim after the harvest. Isaiah 24, 12 through 13. The city is left in ruins, its gates battered down. Throughout the earth, the story is the same. Only a remnant is left, like the stray olives left on the tree or the few grapes on the vine after harvest. Harvest was never a good thing in the Old Testament. It was never positioned as great. It was positioned as judgment. Jeremiah 51, 33. This is what the Lord of Heaven's armies, this is what the Lord of Heaven's armies, the God of Israel says. Babylon is like wheat on the threshing floor, about to be trampled. In just a little while, her harvest will begin. Hosea 6, 11. O Judah, a harvest of punishment. So it's not a good thing. When the harvest was referred to in contextual terms throughout the Old Testament and with the children of Israel, it was never the harvest is never. Harvest was never great. The harvest was, oh no, we're about to be shredded. Oh Judah, a harvest of punishment is also waiting for you. Though I wanted to restore the fortunes of my people. Joel 3.13, swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Off with their heads. We've got a harvest to kill. 
Come tread the grapes for the wine press is full. The storage vats are overflowing with the wickedness of these people. Jesus, watch this. This is so important. Jesus turned the harvest from judgment to opportunity in one sentence. He changed the harvest from what should be judged, what should be slaughtered, and what should be killed to the greatest opportunity that we have. Do you, do you, I mean, are you grasping this, right? Jesus says the harvest is great, and they're all like, what? I thought it was terrible. I thought it was a disaster. I thought it deserved judgment. But Jesus changes the harvest. Jesus saves the harvest. Jesus redeems the harvest. Only Jesus can say the harvest is great because Jesus is the only hope of the harvest. That's why he can come before them and say, hey, guess what's great? The harvest. And they're like, what in the world? The harvest? Yes, the harvest. It is, it, is, it is this mindset change for us. What we are currently judging or rejecting or upset with could be the greatest opportunity that we have. I've been saying this since 2020. The greatest opportunity of the church right now is to show compassion, love, and grace to people who are searching for it. Because there have never been more people in our world that are looking for compassion, they're looking for grace, they're trying to be understood, and with that comes a viewpoint. But listen, if you are willing to show grace, and you are willing to show compassion, and you are willing to invite somebody in, you will quickly see how their theology will begin to change. Why? Because compassion is the viewpoint that opens up the harvest, not judgment. Jesus said the harvest is great. It's no longer a judgment zone. It's an opportunity zone. We have to make this change in our minds. I spend a lot of time in the special needs community just by nature of the wonderful children that God's blessed me with, and I talk to a lot of, of dads of special needs children and, and that sort of nature, and one of them, and this is very real, and this is a phenomenal dad, so don't get me wrong, but he asks a question that we all really wrestle with. I've wrestled with this before too. He asked me one time, He's working through his faith. He's, he's working out uh, who God's called him to be and following Jesus. And he said, hey, I got a question for you. He said, what do you think I did so that God gave me a son with autism? He said, do you, do you think it was, you know, my, my drug use in the past? Do you think it was my drinking and chasing? He said, what, what do you think I did that made God give me a son with autism? You think he was so mad at me that he hit me at the place where it hurts the deepest in my son? He said, what, what do you think? And I'll tell you, and that's, that's a very real thing to walk through when you have special needs children. Um, but I, I love John 9, 1 through 3. It's one of my favorite passages when it comes to special needs and uniquely abled people, right? Um, here it is, John 9, 1 through 3. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. He saw somebody with a disability, right? So Jesus is walking along with his disciples. They see somebody with a disability, and here's what they say. Verse 2, Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? Isn't that crazy? They walk by, they see a disabled person, they say, hey, Jesus, what do you think? Was it him or was it his parents that got him blind? 
Whose sins were, was it that screwed this guy up, that got him, got him blind? And listen to what Jesus says. He says, it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. Isn't that amazing? The disciples are looking at this man with judgment. And Jesus is looking at him with opportunity. The disciples are saying, was it him or his parents that screwed him up? Jesus is saying, maybe what you're looking at is your greatest opportunity to see the power of God on full display. So my friend, I had this conversation with my friend. He comes back to me a couple weeks later. Man, I told you, I've just started crying all of a sudden. I don't know what's wrong with me. Uh, I'm going to be tough, right? Hard, never cry. And he comes up to me. He says, hey, brother. He said, hey, hey. He's a real boisterous guy. He said, guess what? I said, what? He said, guess what I'm calling that? He said, guess what I'm calling that boy? I said, what? He said, that's my gift. He said, I call him my gift. He said, every time I see him, I say, come here, my little gift. And he said, because I, I see God in that boy. He said, I see God all over that boy. He said, that's my gift. Let me ask you something. What if the people and the things that you are judging and you are constantly distancing yourself from, what if that is God placing them in your proximity to give you a gift of seeing his glory? to give you a gift of seeing what it would be like to be compassionate to somebody different than you, to love somebody different than you, to care for somebody who doesn't believe the way you do, vote the way you do, or talk the way you do. What if God is saying, I'm not giving you this to judge, I'm giving you this as an opportunity. Here it is, right in front of your face. You have a problem to solve and I've put them right in your midst. Will you be my people? Will you show compassion? Or will you show judgment? And then he finishes. we got to hurry. You have a prayer to answer. We have a prayer to answer. Matthew 9, verse 38. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his field. Isn't this wild? So Jesus says, here's what my ministry has been. Remember, Matthew 9, verse 35. Teaching, calling people to the kingdom, healing the sick. This is what my ministry has been. This is what I need you to become. Now pray because we need help. Pray, we need There you are. Let me, let me summarize this for you really quick. Starting in Matthew chapter one. Okay, I want you to see this because there is a, a major change that takes place that we need to jump in on. Uh, I'm gonna summarize the book of Matthew up to the story that we're at, okay? Matthew 1 and 2 is the birth of Jesus, the genealogy, the birth of Jesus. After that, they escape to Egypt. After they escape to Egypt, they return to Nazareth. And at that point, John the Baptist prepares the way. After John the Baptist prepares the way, he baptizes Jesus. After Jesus is baptized, Matthew chapter 4, he rolls into the temptation of the enemy. After he overcomes the temptation, he kicks off his ministry with the greatest sermon ever preached. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Sermon on the Mount. We did an entire season on that. He preaches this incredible sermon. After he preaches this sermon, here were his ministry activities. He heals a man with leprosy. He heals the Roman centurion's officer. He heals many people. 
He lets people know the cost of following him, that you may lose your life. He calms the storm. He heals two demon-possessed men. Then he heals a paralyzed man. Then he calls Matthew and other disciples to him. He has a discussion about fasting. He heals in response to faith. And then he calls them together, and he, he heals a blind man. And right after he heals the blind man, he calls his disciples together, and he says to them, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. Pray to the God of the harvest to send workers into the field. Matthew chapter 10. Here we are. First thing Jesus does right after that. Jesus called his 12 disciples together again and gave them authority to cast out evil spirits, to heal every kind of disease and illness. Matthew 10, 5 through 8 says, Jesus sent out the 12 disciples with these instructions. Don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but only to the people of Israel, God's lost sheep. Go to the harvest. Go to the place where it's great. Verse 7. Go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, and cast out demons. Give as freely as you have received. Matthew 10, 16 through 20, their final marching orders. He says, look, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. So be as shrewd as snakes and as harmless as doves. But beware, for you will be handed over to the courts and will be flogged with whips in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your... Oh, come on, Eleven! It's your opportunity! It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be messy. It's going to be uncomfortable. And when you get in trouble for it, what is our mindset? It's our opportunity. This is your opportunity to tell the rulers and other believers about me, and unbelievers about me. When you go, when you are arrested, don't worry about how you will respond or what you will say. God will give you the right words at the right time. For it is not you who will be speaking, it will be the spirit of your father speaking through you. Imagine this, okay? Just imagine this. Jesus ends, the harvest is great, the workers are few. Pray for more people to enter the harvest. Then he says, now come here, come here, come here, gather in. He says, now, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go preach, you're going to go heal, you're going to go do a work. Now guess what? 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 They're all like, okay, do we pray, do we not? Go! Go! That's what he does. He says, you, come here, pray for the harvest. Now go! Get out of here! I want to see you no more. What are you waiting for, right? There are times where we've got to quit asking and just start acting. Listen to me. You don't need to pray about what Jesus has already told you to do. Let me say that again. If he's told you to do it here, what are you praying about? Jesus has not told you to wait four months. That's what we say. Jesus says the harvest is now. Jesus says, hey, come here. Pray about this. Okay, good. Go. I don't need your prayers anymore. I need you to act. Don't ask, act. Sometimes we have to act. Fulfilling the harvest is not asking and asking and asking and asking. It is asking while acting. See what Jesus did. He said, I want you to pray about this. But while you're praying about it, go do it. Go make it happen. There is something to be said for action without asking. I remember when we were moving out of our apartment in Conroe, it was like 10 or 11 years ago, into the house that we had bought 
And when we were moving, one of my friends called me, and he said, uh, his name was Tim, and Tim said, hey, man, what are you doing? You want to go grab breakfast at Waffle House? I said, man, I'm, I'm moving this morning. I can't. He was like, oh, okay, cool. Hangs up the phone. 30 minutes later, outside of my apartment, he shows up, pickup truck, and a big trailer, and he gets out. And I'm like, what are you doing? Tim, what are you doing? He said, you said we're moving today. <laughs> I said, what? He said, yeah, you said we're moving. I'm like, no. I said, I was moving. He said, I know. Let's move. Guy's walking through my house, like picking up dressers and carrying them down to his trailer. And he's moving. He does all this, right? We get to my house. It's like 7, 30, 8 o'clock at night. Pizza guy shows up. The guy's like, yeah, I got an order here of like seven pizzas. I'm like, I didn't order no pizza. Tim is like, oh, yeah, I ordered pizza too. Come on. Bring the pizza, we're going to eat. And I said, Tim, dude, you can go home. And Tim said, I'll go home when the job's done. Tim is a guy who just shows up. He just takes action. He does it, right? Clayton planted a church three weeks ago. Do you think I text Clayton and said, hey, do you want me to come? Hey, do you want me to show up? Hey, do you mind if I? No, I showed up. I showed up. Drove an hour and a half the wrong, out of the way to go to his church plant on our church's six-year anniversary. Got here during the first worship song to preach. Why? Because sometimes you just need to show up. Sometimes you just need to take action. Sometimes you just need to do it. Quit praying about it and just do it. You've already been told what to do. We've got a neighbor whose wife passed away, and Canaan and I were going outside. His yard had been growing up. Canaan and I were going out in the driveway to work out, and I look over there, and I see Brett, our friend. He's mowing his yard. Brett didn't text him and say, hey, you need anything? Hey, sorry about what you're going through. Can I help you with anything? No, Brett just took action. He, took, he knew what he needed to do. He knew what he needed. He just, he took action and did it. When Anna was in the hospital, two hours postpartum, Ezra and I are in an ambulance. We're flying downtown Houston to get him emergency surgery. And Anna's sitting alone, two hours postpartum, in a hospital by herself. Baby's been taken away. They won't discharge her yet. And she sends out a text to a couple of friends. Hey, you know, just pray for me. Guess what? Kelsey showed up. Katie showed up. And ask them. They showed up. Why? Because sometimes we just need to learn to act. Sometimes we use asking as an excuse to taking action. Hey, you need anything? Let me know. You don't mean that. You don't mean that. And some do. And, and very, I, don't, I don't want you to think I'm, I'm, you know, any sort. But what I'm saying is this. Here's what Jesus did. Let's get back to Jesus. This is what Jesus did. Jesus said, pray for the harvest. Oh, and hey, by the way, get out of here. Get out of here. Go. Go. I got nothing to do with you. Yeah, we are, we are praying for lost people while we're trying to reach lost people, right? We are praying for people who don't know Jesus while we're trying to reach people who don't know Jesus, right? Jesus gathers them together and he says, hey, here's what we have to be. We're going to be broken to our knees compassionate. We have to have a compassion that moves our soul. We have got to see these people, these people, whoever these and they and everything are, we've got to see them as the greatest opportunity God has placed before us. And we have to go. We have to take action. The opportunity has never been greater. All Jesus is saying is get out of here and go.